Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. I trust that you hear the message of those songs that we sang, some very precious words, songs about grace, how God looks on us as from his grace. And when he looks at us, he sees not our sins, and he sees not the way we are, but he sees Jesus Christ and who we shall be in him. And our greatest concern this morning as a church that wants to honor God's grace is that you know Jesus as your Savior, and that you have come face to face with him, and that you know you are born again, and you have everlasting life, the living water, that he has placed his spirit in you, and all of that he has made available through faith in Jesus Christ, by believing, by trusting in what he has done for us on the cross when he died and took all our sins upon himself and he rose from the dead and then made a fantastic offer of grace, the free gift of eternal life to anyone who believes, to anyone who would receive it, to anyone who would ask for it. And I trust that everyone here this morning can say, yes, I have eternal life, and I'm rejoicing in that. Because if you don't, we would like to be able to help you, and I'd be happy to meet with you afterwards sometime in private or just talk to you, answer your questions about that. Maybe you're dealing or struggling with doubts about your eternal salvation, your assurance of salvation, and uh, you're not quite sure that if you died, you'd go to heaven. We'd like to help you with that, too as well. That's our greatest concern at Burleson Bible Church, is that you come into God's family by the grace of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, His Son. And then we'll help you grow to be what He wants you to be. Today we continue talking about God's grace in a series we're calling Becoming a People of Grace. Grace is an operative word, a key word in the Bible. It's not just a theological concept, and, and many people are tempted to say, oh yeah, grace, That's a word we hear about quite a bit, and every church I go to, I hear about that word. But I don't think that the word, though familiar to most, is understood very deeply by many, and certainly not practiced consistently in many churches and by many Christians. And that's the purpose of what we're talking about on Sunday morning, is to find out what does grace mean and how does that shape our lives? Sometimes to do that, we, we have to emphasize what is positive about grace, and sometimes we have to emphasize what is contrary to grace. And unfortunately, today we have to emphasize what is contrary to grace, the great grace killer that we run into sometimes. And I'm going to speak from a number of Bible passages, so we didn't print that in your your sermon notes, but you might open your Bibles to begin with um, at John chapter 6, and we'll be skipping around to some different passages. We're going to end up uh, and look at uh, quite a few passages in the book of Galatians. You may want to turn there. Let's pray together. Father, grace is such a wonderful blessing, and it brings to us a standing before God. By grace, we can stand and enter the family of God. Uh, We want to be sure, Father, that no one here misses the grace of God. And I pray, Lord, that you would open an eye, uh, some hearts here this morning, for someone who may not know you as Savior or for someone who may not be living in the freedom and the glorious liberty of the sons of God, who may feel imprisoned, 
and in bondage to their sin or to rules or to laws or to others' expectations. But I pray that they would find freedom today. Help us to understand, Lord, what it is that kills grace, that we might avoid it and stand against it. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Did you know that in Kentucky, it is illegal to shoot the tie off of a policeman? Didn't know that, did you? Did you know that in South Padre Island, it's illegal to wear a tie? And all God's people said, Amen. Let's move there. In Indiana, it is illegal to go fishing in a cemetery. In Amarillo, it's illegal to take a bath in the middle of Main Street during banking hours. In Portland, it's illegal to wear roller skates in public restrooms. In Halethorpe, Maryland, it's illegal for a public kiss to last over one second. Sometimes we get a little carried away with our laws, don't we? They even sound kind of silly when we step back from them. Sometimes, however, this kind of desire for rules and laws to govern us creeps into our Christian lives, creeps into our churches as well. And boy, they can be just as silly, just as tedious as the ones we've seen. I remember how when I was a new Christian, I was rejoicing in the new freedom and forgiveness that I, I felt and had through Jesus Christ. And such was my enthusiasm for the Bible and spiritual things that I signed up in a for, enrolled in a Bible college just around the corner from where I was living. My friend and I, we were saved together, we lived together, and we signed up for Bible college together. And here we were with great expectations uh, coming to this college for registration. And uh, what did we find out? Well, they wouldn't let us in. They wouldn't let us in because my hair, which was about this length, was too long. It couldn't touch my ears, you see. It had to be cut above my ears. And so I agreed to a haircut. My friend agreed to a haircut, and then they went and cut his hair, and he came back to register, and it was still too long. It touched his ears. And about this time, he, we were both so upset, we were about ready to just walk out of there and not register at all. Rules can get a little bit overbearing at times and steal the joy and the freedom and the liberty that we have in Jesus Christ. How can we be consistent then? and li living a life that reflects the glorious freedom of the sons of God and avoiding the tedium and the unnecessary legislation that can so easily put us back into bondage. You see, the truth is you can legislate behavior, but you really can't legislate morality. In other words, we can impose laws, government, churches, anybody can impose laws to mold behavior, but that doesn't change the heart. You know, we can put a, a law that says 20 miles an hour uh, school zone, but you and I know that, that doesn't change our heart. We all want to go zipping through there. You can have a law that outlaws uh, a pornog pornography in a community, but you and I know that the heart will still lust for those things. So laws control outward behavior, but they don't change us inwardly. But when we talk about grace and being a grace-driven church, we're talking about an inward motivation that God has produced in our hearts a desire to change because of all that he has done for us and all that he's given to us. And our response to that is to want to change from the inside out. Not because of the laws and the rules that people put on us, but because of what God has done in freeing us inside. He has put to death the old man. He has made us a new person in Jesus Christ. But it's so easy to get caught up in the rules and the laws that govern us. We want to be, go back into bondage to those 
so easy that we can lose, we're in danger of losing the spirit of liberty that God has given us. So what is the great grace killer that I'm talking about and around here? In a word, we call it legalism. Legalism, we will define for you. Legalism is basically living under rules instead of under the freedom of grace and God's spirit. Today I want to talk a little bit more though in detail about what it is, what it looks like, and how we can go from legalism to liberty. Remember we said last Sunday that when we look at the Christian life, and we, we got this from Romans chapter 6, that God has freed us, and he has freed us from our old master of sin to a new person in Jesus Christ, a new identity in him. And he did not free us to do whatever we wanted to do, though. He freed us to do whatever God wanted us to do. And so we're to use our freedom to serve God. Christians, however, can abuse freedom and liberty in two ways. They can either go to one extreme, which is license, that is, the attitude, I'm free in Jesus Christ, I can do whatever I want to. I've got my salvation. I've got my eternal life assurance. And I can do what I want to now. And we're often accused of that when we preach grace. The Bible, of course, balances that with liberty. Liberty means a responsible use of our freedom, doing God's will by serving him with our freedom. The other extreme that Christians fall into is called legalism. And legalism is that which goes back under rules that don't change the inner person, but only mold outward behavior. And we're going to talk about that in particular today. What is legalism then? Well, there's basically, legalism basically can have three different strands, and you'll see them running through the New Testament. When we talk about legalism in reference to unbelievers, we're talking about requiring people who don't know Christ as Savior, to, in order to be saved, to do something in order to be saved. So it would be a salvation through works or merit. In other words, believing in Jesus isn't enough to save you. You have to believe and you have to be baptized. You have to believe and you have to come down and confess him before people and stand before the church and, and confess that Jesus is your Savior before the church. Or you have to believe in Jesus and come to church regularly or take the Eucharist or Mass or Lord's Supper and 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 and, and, and so on. I call this front-loading the gospel. In other words, you can't be saved unless right up front you make certain commitments to Jesus Christ. That's called front-loading the gospel. There are those who do that, unfortunately. Many otherwise good, sincere Christians say that you have to right up front make certain commitments to Jesus Christ to serve him, to, that he is make him your Lord of every area of your life and promise to obey him and all these things. If you commonly call lordship salvation requires all these front end commitments to the gospel. Really, though, it approaches on salvation by works or merit instead of just receiving the free gift of God. That's one form of legalism that we have. A second form of legalism is concerning those who are saved but who want to go back under the law. So, instead of salvation by doing certain things, it is sanctification by keeping the law. There are good, sincere Christians who come to faith in Jesus Christ and are saved. But then they fall into a system, or maybe by their own reasoning, go back into a system of having to keep the law of the Old Testament. We must only worship on Saturday, the Sabbath, for example. The Old Testament law never repeated the New Testament. We can't eat certain foods. There are groups that keep the Jewish holidays. 
that require a certain percentage of your income as a tithe, as they did in the Old Testament law. And you're not really a Christian if you don't keep the law. Either that or you will lose your salvation if you don't keep the law, is what they teach. They mix sanctification with keeping the law. A third strand form of this legalism comes um, to Bible-believing Christians, Christians who are truly saved, but who think that spirituality comes by meeting artificial standards. In other words, by living up to certain human regulations, again, that they might impose on themselves or that a church might impose on them. Such as a certain number of times to attend church, for example. You're really not spiritual unless you come to church three times a week. You know, they used to say that. They used to have a saying. They probably, some churches, I'm sure, still do. If you come to church on Sunday morning, it shows that you love the church. If you come to church on Sunday night, it shows that you love the pastor. If you come to church on Wednesday night, it shows you love God. So you're really not a spiritual Christian unless you come to church three times a week. These churches that live, want to live up to artificial standards create the standards uh, for certain kinds of dress. For example, you can't wear blue jeans, you can't wear shorts, you can't do this, you can't wear makeup. There's laws about music that can be played and can't be played, about instruments that can be used and not used. Can't play electrical instruments in this church, no drums in this church, no guitars in this church. All human man-made standards, artificial standards, that are supposed to prove you are spiritual. That's a different breed of legalism that affects many, many people today. Probably one that you and I will struggle with more than the other two, to be honest with you. So what, is, what does legalism look like? That's what legalism is. And in summary, we could, we could say that all legalism is conformity to an artificial standard in order to please God. Did you get that? That's basically what legalism is, if you want something of a definition. It is conformity to an artificial standard to please God, supposedly to please God. But what that really does, all that really does, is it leads to an attitude of pride and self-exaltation, which is at the heart of legalism. Legalism is a way for a person or a church to say, I am more spiritual than you because you don't live up to my standards. And so it is simply a way to exalt self and puff oneself up. And the purpose behind legalism is to make myself sound and look more spiritual and to have more control over you. You see? If I make the rules and I make the regulations and I can keep you falling short of them, then I can control you. You see? And then I am feeling secure because I don't have to live with diversity and I don't have to live with differences. And I don't have to live with everybody walks like me and talks like me and looks like me and thinks like me and dresses like me and does the same thing. Then I, I feel secure. I really believe that a lot of legalism comes from an environment of insecurity and a lack of faith in God's freedom that he's given to us. And to grab that freedom, instead, artificial standards are created so that we can have more control of our surroundings and our environment. Anyway, what does it look like in the New Testament? You know, Jesus ran into it, Paul ran into it, you and I will run into it in our churches. Let's look at an example in Mark chapter 7. I said I'd turn to John, didn't I? I didn't do that. I've skipped a couple of verses. Let's just start in Mark chapter 7, though. And look at there at an example uh, that Jesus encountered. 
You know, Jesus was a pretty nice guy, wasn't he? Until he bumped into the Pharisees. And they just, they just got under his skin. They just bugged him so that he came out with some very harsh things when he talked to the Pharisees. Look at this example, for example. You can see why he might get a little aggravated. In chapter 7 of Mark, in verse 1, the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, Jesus, having come from Jerusalem. Now, here's a man who has been healing the sick, causing the blind to see. He's been saying good things, you know. And you would think that the leaders of the nation of Israel could come up to him and say, hey, man, you're saying it like we've never said it before. Congratulations, you're doing a great job. Keep up the good work. Instead, they want to pick a fight about how to wash your hands. Now, in verse 2, when they saw some of Jesus' disciples eating bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. That special way had to do with dipping your hands in a bowl and kind of letting the water run down. It had to drip down to your elbows. And they had this ritual of washing in such a way before they ate. And you had to do it just their way. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? And he answered and said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, outward, but their heart, inward, is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men, artificial standards, man-made rules. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. And he said to them, all too well, you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. See what legalism does, what legalism did for the Pharisees is it raised their tradition of a certain ritualistic washing above the commandment of God. Actually, we, they would say, well, equal to the commandment of God. But to make it equal is to make it above. To make man's word as important as God's word is to despise God's word. Jesus says, you choose your traditions over God's commandment. And, you, and where God is silent on something, you have interjected your own rules and regulations and standards. And boy, did Jesus get mad. They were so concerned about the outward washing, but their heart was so far from him. Why are we so concerned about the way people are on the outside instead of the way they are on the inside? Preoccupied with the appearance of things. I remember a lady one time, she bought, a, she bought a vacuum cleaner for the church, which was a very nice thing to do. And then after a while, she noticed that it said on there, dirt devil. So she got out the red spray paint and spray painted over devil. As if something like that was going to hurt us. When Christ met that kind of thinking in the Pharisees, he went head to head with them. And some of the strongest language you will ever find him using, hypocrites, he called them. Or in Matthew 21, whitewashed tombs, sepulchers, sepulchers full of dead men's bones. He had his harshest words reserved for them. Woe to you, Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes. Why? Because they were keeping in bondage the Jewish people who could never live up to the rules, who could never find righteousness in their system, who could never find freedom, who lived in bondage, and the Pharisees and the scribes, by piling thousands and thousands of rules upon rules, were able to keep them under their, their thumb. You want an example of some of the rules that the Pharisees had? They had volumes and volumes of, not, of commentary on God's word, and there are 613 commandments in the Old Testament, but in these commentaries, they, had, they came up with thousands more regulations. For example, 
Here's some of the things that you were not allowed to do on the Sabbath. It says the main labor, this I'm reading from a uh, Mishnah commentary from uh, about 200 AD, around the time of Christ. The main labors prohibited on the Sabbath are 40 less one. Sowing, plowing, reaping, binding sheaves, threshing, winnowing, cleansing, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, shearing, wool, washing or beating or dyeing it, spinning, weaving, making two loops, weaving two threads, separating two threads, tying a knot or loosing one, sewing two stitches, tearing in order to sew two stitches. Just occurred to me some of you broke these rules by this morning getting dressed. Hunting a deer and slaughtering it or flaying or salting it or curing its skin or scraping it or cutting it up, writing two letters, erasing in order to write two letters, building, demolishing, extinguishing, kindling, striking with a hammer, carrying from one domain into another. These are the chief labors forbidden on the Sabbath. How would you like to live under that system? But see, all that does is breed hypocrisy. Because, for example, it said you couldn't move a sheaf of wheat on the Sabbath day because that would be work. But if you wanted to move a sheaf of wheat, what you do is you take a spoon and you put the spoon on the sheaf of wheat. And it's not illegal to move a spoon, so then you can move the whole sheaf of wheat with the spoon on it. And that's how you hypocritically got around the commandments of the Sabbath day. It never changed the heart. It only affected their outward behavior. It didn't have man as a concern in his welfare. It was only for the benefit of those who wanted to control people. The Sabbath, man was not made for the Sabbath, but what? Sabbath was made for man, to serve him. Man wasn't made to serve rules. Rules were made to serve him. Compare that attitude to this rabbi that I read about in the Fort Worth Star-Telegram a few years ago. Little little short article says, Jerusalem, tenants in the ultra-Orthodox city of Benai Barak let their apartments burn yesterday while awaiting a rabbi's permission to break the Sabbath and call the fire department. Observant Jews are forbidden from using telephones on the Sabbath because it's considered work, but they're permitted to break the restriction on working in emergencies. When the apartment caught fire yesterday, the owner was out of town, so neighbors asked a rabbi whether the fire constituted an emergency. Thirty minutes later, the rabbi said yes. In the meantime, the fire spread to two apartment, neighboring apartment units. No concern for people, just for the law itself. The letter of the law. No wonder Jesus came head to head with these Pharisees in harsh words. You know, this attitude of, of Pharisaism and what we call Judaism, keeping the laws of the Jews, after Jesus left, persisted and dogged the teachers of grace in the New Testament church. Turn to Acts chapter 15, if you would, and we will see there another example of legalism emerging in the early church. Acts chapter 15. The apostle Paul and Barnabas had gone about preaching the grace of God, and they preached it to Gentiles so that Gentiles were saved. The Jewish people, who were formerly of the Pharisaical party, however, became upset because they didn't think Gentiles could be saved as Gentiles. They thought they were saying in verse 1, certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. Paul and Barnabas heard about that and they were summoned to a meeting about it. Verse 5 again repeats the problem, but some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed, they were believers, they were Christians, it tells us that. They rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. That's fine that they came to know Jesus as Savior, but if they want to continue in the Christian life, they need to go back under the law of Moses. Well, this caused the apostles and elders to come together to debate that, whether it was they, that should be a necessary condition. Peter stands up, a leader of the church in verse 7. 
And he says, men and brothers, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He's referring to the incident where he preached the gospel to Cornelius and Cornelius and his household believed. And they were Gentiles. In verse 8, so God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did us. And made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Amen. And thank you, Peter, for that good word. Peter says, why do you want to put a yoke of the law on their necks when we couldn't even keep it ourselves? They were saved the same way we were saved by faith in the grace of God. Why put that heavy yoke on them and make them go back under the Jewish law as Christians? But what did Jesus say in Matthew 11, 28 through 30? He said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you find Christ leading the Christian life and living on a day-to-day -day basis in your relationship with God to be burdensome, then you're doing something wrong. You're living under some expectations that God doesn't want you to live under. It is not burdensome. It is light. It is easy. It is glorious freedom when you understand what grace is. Well, another occasion it came up was with the Apostle Paul. Everywhere Paul went and taught the grace of God, there would be the Judaizers who would come along. Almost every one of his epistles addresses that problem. Those who tried to get the, the Christians back under the law, keeping certain days and eating certain foods. He addresses the question more strongly in the book of Galatians, and that's where I want to go now. In fact, the whole letter to the book, the whole letter to the Galatian church deals with the issue of legalism, of those who are trying to get the Christians to go back under the law. We could teach the whole book, but in chapter one, just notice some of the language he uses. And here's where Paul uses the most emotional, vehement language he uses in in any of his epistles, and it's against legalism. I marvel, he says in verse 6, that you are so soon turning away from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. I can't believe you're going to a different gospel. He called you in the grace of Christ. He says, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert or twist the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say, if we are... If we or an angel from heaven preaches any other gospel to you, then what we've preached to you, let him be accursed. Your Bible may say eternally condemned if it's an NIV. The word literally means a curse. It's the word anathema. It simply means to be under God's curse. I don't think he's saying that if you believe, if you go back under the law, you'll, you'll go to hell. That's not what the word means. It just means you'll be under God's curse. Because if you're not under grace, you're under, you're under something else. It's not the blessings of God. You'll be cursed. You'll be back under bondage. You put yourself back under bondage. And Paul can't believe that they're wanting to do this. He's amazed that they would do this. He uses extremely strong language with them. In chapter 2, he goes on to explain that Titus was traveling with him. But in verse 3, he says, Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. He's saying, and all the times that I brought Titus with me as a Gentile, and I brought him into Jewish synagogues, they always wanted to know if he was circumcised, and they put pressure on me to circumcise him. Paul says, I resisted. Never once did I back down. Never once did I give in and have Titus circumcised. Good for you, Paul. Way to take a stand. Way to hold firm and be consistent with your theology. In chapter 3, Paul's reasoning with them. 
O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? How were you saved? Tell me, he says. How were you saved? By keeping the law or by faith? In verse 3, are you so foolish having begun in the Spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Do you think that you can be saved by faith and receive the Spirit of God by faith, nothing that you do, and now that you can win God's acceptance by doing something and living under a performance basis? Obviously, the answer is not so. No way. In chapter 3, and verse 24, he explains that the law was simply a tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. The law is not there to save us or keep us saved or to make us acceptable to God. The law had one purpose. It was to show us that we were condemned so that we would have nowhere to turn but to Jesus Christ as our Savior, that we might be justified by faith. And then verse 25, but after faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor, no longer under the law. Romans 6, 14, you're no longer under the law, you're under grace. What are we then? Under grace, verse 26, for you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. The law doesn't make us sons. Grace, faith in God's graceful gift makes us sons of God. So why go back to the law, he says in chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements? In other words, the first principles things of do's and don'ts, to which you desire again to be in bondage. You observe days and months and seasons and years. Have I done all this for nothing? Have I labored in vain, he says in verse 11? Why do you want to go back to that? doesn't make sense to him. Chapter 5 really expresses the theme of the whole book of Galatians in verse 1. Here's his word to the Galatians. Here's his word to us today. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Stand fast. Paul's saying, don't just do something, stand there. They were doing too much, trying to please the law. Just take a stand in God's freedom, in God's liberty. Don't go back and get all tangled up in the yoke of the law, which he calls bondage. And look at some of his reasons. Verse 2, he says, Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. In other words, if you go back under the law, circumcision meaning keeping the law because that was the sign that you're keeping the law, you want to go back under the law, then Christ isn't going to profit you anything. In other words, if you, if you want to go back under the law to make you spiritual, then you're cutting yourself off from the blessings of God's grace. You can't count on grace to make you spiritual if you go back under the law. It's going to be, you're going to be on your own. It's going to be all your efforts. You better do a good job. Because Christ isn't going to bless you with strength and growth and peace and love and harmony. Verse 3 says, I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. What's he saying? He's saying, if you go back under the law, by the way, it's not just the Ten Commandments. It's all 613 commandments in the Old Testament. And you better keep every single one of them. Because if you break one, you're not going to measure up. You see, that's, what, that's why I said the law was given to curse us, not to bless us. The law was given to show that we couldn't keep it. But he says, if you want to go that, down that road, then you've got to keep all 613 commandments. Verse 4, you have become estranged from Christ. In other words, you've cut yourself off from Christ and all his benefits and blessings. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen 
from grace. Now, this term confuses a lot of people. The word fallen means to be estranged or cut off. And he's saying that if you go down the, the, the route of the law, then you're cutting yourself off from the blessings of Jesus Christ. He's not saying that you're cutting yourself off from salvation here. You're cutting yourself off from the blessings of the system of grace that gives us all that we need to live up to as a son of God and the liberty of, the, of Jesus Christ. Go that, you, you go and rely on your self-efforts and what you can do, then of course you're not going to be able to. You can't do both ways. You can't have the blessings of Christ's strength and power and grace if you're trying to do it on your own. In verses 5 and 6, he says, The only way for true righteousness is through grace, for we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. It's faith. It's love that conditions us to righteousness and truth. In verse 7, he goes on to wonder, you ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Who tripped you up, literally, is what the word means. Who tripped you up anyway? Verse 8, this persuasion doesn't come from him who calls you. It didn't come from God. <laughs> That's Paul's way of saying it came from Satan. Nothing, nothing Satan would rather do than to get Christians back into bondage feeling guilty and shameful and condemned. Because when they feel that way, they can do nothing for God. That's exactly where Satan wants us. Verse 9 is a warning. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. What's he saying here? That legalism has a permeating power like leaven in a loaf of dough that you're making into bread. It just multiplies and multiplies, and before you know it, it's infected the whole thing. Legalism is infectious. And you can see how insidiously it works. One person says, makes up an artificial standard. And to try to please that person, you conform. Because you don't want him looking down on you. And you are he's been a Christian longer than you anyway. And then others begin to see your pattern and they begin to conform. And so everybody's living in hostage to one person. Everybody's dancing around trying to please one person. Who now has control of the whole group. Because he's the most spiritual. Legalism so easily infects Christians today as it did then and controls them by fear and insecurity and holds them hostage. It's a big problem not only in Jesus' day and in Paul's day and in the early church, but it's a big problem in our churches today. I'm running out a little short on time, so I'm not going to read a couple quotes, but there's just a couple Christian leaders saying how, how much it has become a widespread problem, not just today, but especially the last century or so in our church's history. And how it renders and leaves the church dead and listless and dull. I could just tell you some examples. <laughs> In our new office space, you know, we've made friends with all of our office neighbors. And two ladies especially keep coming in there and telling me, and they keep reminding me how much they hate legalism because they grew up in the legalistic church, they keep telling me. Are they going to church today? No. That's usually the case, you see. Legalism burns Christians out and makes them bitter. And they get so frustrated by trying to live up to other people's standards that mean absolutely nothing in their relationship to God. They get so embittered and angry and frustrated or guilty that they just stop going. And I don't blame them. I don't blame them at all. And I've got two ladies coming into the office to talk regularly now. We've befriended them, and I give them a little literature here and there. And they're both complaining about how they were brought up in a legalistic church. 
One still goes, but she says, but I believe in grace, not legalism. Or I could tell you about another lady I know who went to church one, one Sunday in pants, and the preacher preached against her in wearing pants right, right there in the Sunday service. We're about a, a missionary that uh, we sent up to a church in Burleson, and he goes into the church and he preaches his message from the New King James Version of the Bible. No, it wasn't the New King James, it was the New Schofield Version, which is the Old King James Version, but New Schofield Version of the Old King James Version. And the people wouldn't talk to him afterwards because he didn't use the old, Old King James Version. Or about a young lady at one of our evening Sunday services when we used to have them, only two families came, and they were one of the families, and she said, I want to pray, her prayer request is, I want to pray for revival and more commitment. I just don't understand why people don't come to the house of God more often on Sundays. What does that betray about that person's attitude? Why aren't they as spiritual as I am? And then we export it. We export it to missionaries who go overseas and impose their same rules and laws on fellow missionaries and on the people they're trying to reach. Chuck Swindoll, in his book, Grace Awakening, writes about a missionary couple who was ostracized by the missionary community where they lived overseas because they used peanut butter. You see, peanut butter was very hard to get in that country. You couldn't get it. And so these missionaries had concluded that, well, that's just one of the sacrifices we'll make for Jesus. We give up peanut butter. And if you're spiritual, you'll give up peanut butter, too. But a new family came on the scene, and they were able through a, a, a really uh, fancy way of getting peanut butter there. And so their family enjoyed peanut butter. But the other missionaries grew jealous and said, well, you're not as spiritual as we are. Gave them a hard time. and It was ready to divide the whole missionary work there. Nothing will lead to deadness quicker than legalism. Our family this past summer visited a community of two, over 250,000 people. Over 250,000 people. Most amazing place I ever visited because nobody drank, nobody did drugs, nobody danced, nobody cheated, nobody stole, and in this community of 250 people, nobody even disagreed. It's called Arlington National Cemetery. And it's such a popular place, it grows by 20 every day. You see, you can have a church where everybody does the same thing and walks in lockstep, but I guarantee you it's going to be a dead, dead church. There's not going to be the spirit of grace and liberty that's found in Jesus Christ. We can wear black and white and ride horse-drawn buggies, but I don't think we're going to reach our community for Jesus Christ. I read in the newspaper recently, there's a, and I don't want to pick on them, they're fine folks, but there was an Amish man who... He was thrown into prison, and when it was time to be released, he didn't want to go. He said he enjoyed enjoying the TV so much, he didn't want to go. But what does that tell you about his religion? There's something to learn there. If prison is more liberating than living at home. How do we get from legalism to liberty? What does Paul say in Galatians chapter 1? First of all, you take a stand. You have to fight for it. Liberty never comes. Freely. It always takes a price. Look at the history of America. Every time our freedom is threatened, we pay, and we pay in blood to keep free. As Christians, if you want to maintain your liberty in Jesus Christ, you have to fight for it. Jesus fought for it. Jesus used his harshest language. Paul used his harshest language. Peter stood up and took a stand for liberty in the gospel of grace. 
My friends, my strongest words in this church and in my ministry and my history has never been towards people who disagree with me in doctrine. My strongest stand has always been on those who try to impose rules and laws on me to tell me how I can be spiritual if I live the way they're living. I will resist that tooth and claw, which I can grow real quickly. Take a firm stand against liberty because that is what will kill a church faster than differences in doctrine. I guarantee. Recent, you know, for years, for years in, in the 1900s, you couldn't write a book about cults without describing the worldwide Church of God founded by Herbert W. Armstrong. A church full of legalism where you had to go to church on Sunday, you had to keep the Jewish feast, you had to give 30% of your income, a triple tithe, they called it. You couldn't join in government, you couldn't vote, you couldn't join the military, you couldn't celebrate holidays. They kept the Jewish law. Herbert W. Armstrong died. Another fellow took over and began studying the Bible. And he came to the conclusion that we, as who want to follow Jesus, are under a new covenant. And he proclaimed that to his denomination, and most of them left. A half of them left and took half the finances and half the members and half the pastors left the denomination. But today, today, this denomination, the Worldwide Church of God, is now an evangelical Bible-believing group that believes in grace just like you and I do. An amazing transformation they've gone through. And they've discovered liberty and... Listen to some of the words of their testimonies. This is what uh, the leader says. For decades, we regarded the law of Moses as the basis of our righteousness. We attempted to relate to God through the old covenant rules and regulations. In his mercy, God has shown us that the old covenant obligations do not apply to Christians. We are, not under, we are now under the new covenant. He has led us into the riches of his grace and a renewed relationship with Jesus Christ. He's opened our hearts and minds to the joy of his salvation. The scriptures speak to us with fresh meaning and we rejoice daily and the personal relationship we have with our Lord and Savior. Amen and hallelujah for them. In fact, they asked a pastor friend of ours in town here if they could use his church to meet. They still want to meet on Saturday because they realize that in, in, in grace, they can have the freedom to do that if they want to. And, they, and, and the pastor asked me, he said, do you think I ought to let them meet? They want to meet on Saturday. And they explained it's not because of the law, but they just, they, they're just in the habit of doing that. And uh, should I let them? Uh, I heard that they, are, that they had made this transformation. I said, why not? Why not? You got to stand for it. You got to stand against it. I said, go ahead and let them use your church. Take a stand against it wherever you find it. Be strong, be courageous, but stand up against it. The only time I ever heard a pastor cuss when he was telling me about how legalistic his church was. <laughs> the only time I ever heard a pastor cuss. And I promise you I'll never cuss, but I'll get awfully strong if, if we find legalism. Burleson Bible Church seeks to be a grace-driven church. That means we want to try to reflect the grace of God that welcomes people, draws them in, is attractive to them, that teaches we're acceptable to God only through faith in Jesus Christ. We don't impose standards and rules on anybody where the Bible doesn't speak about it. And if the Bible doesn't condemn drums, we're free to use drums. If the Bible doesn't condemn electric guitars, we're free to use electric guitars. If the Bible doesn't condemn blue jeans, you can wear blue jeans as far as I'm concerned. We want to be just, we want to reflect the spirit of God through grace. Take a stand for grace, teach grace, but you who tend to be under the law and imposing an artificial standard for yourself or for others, 
My word to you is to trust God. I really think the opposite of legalism is a spirit of faith in Jesus Christ. If legalism does stem from insecurity and wanting to control your environment, then trust God and let him control the environment. Don't tell God and other people what it is to be spiritual. Let God tell you, and you trust in him to change me. Don't you try to change me. Well, we're out of time. Remember that grace is all about who you are and not about what you do. Let me read a quote from Oswald Chambers. The spirit of God is always the spirit of liberty. The spirit that is not of God is the spirit of bondage. The spirit of oppression and depression. The spirit of God convicts vividly and tense, tensely, but he's always the spirit of liberty. God who made the bird never made bird cages. It is men who make bird cages. And after a while, we become cramped and could do nothing but chirp and stand on one leg. When we get out into God's great free life, we discover that that is the way God means us to live, the glorious liberty of the children of God. God made birds. He did not make bird cages. Men make bird cages. I want to free you today from a cage of legalism. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.